Thanks, Andrew. And yeah, uh, welcome. My name is, is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. Glad to have you um, with us. And we'll get into uh, to Matthew 26, um, that text uh, for this morning in just a moment. So if you have a Bible, uh, feel free to turn there to Matthew 26. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have it on the back table. I would love to give you one as, as a gift um, if you don't own one. And, uh, and also, if you're a kid, we have the green uh, Kid Connect sheet for you to uh, connect with a sermon on your uh, level. And adults, I see it, grab those sometimes. So, you know, whatever, whatever you got to do, follow along, do your thing. Uh, but we have those on the, the back um, table. Um, before we launch into uh, to, um, to Matthew 26, I, I wanted to take a moment and, uh, and just do a pastoral prayer um, for, for our city. Um, one of our core values from uh, the beginning of Christ Community has, has been um, the city value. And, and many of you know, I was in China uh, most of, of, of last week, or not last week, the week before. Um, and while I was in China, um, there was a shooting in Olathe. And as I've, I've reacclimated back to Kansas City, um, it's been clear that we should have prayed for that last week, and, and we didn't. I just, frankly, in my own case, was just unaware of much of what is happening. Um, and, and should have prayed for it for a number of reasons. One is, is the two um, targets, um, and I really hope I get their names pronounced right, uh, but Scovinus and, and Olives. Um, those work for Garmin. That's an important company uh, to us as a church. We have a lot of people here in this room who work for them, as well as across um, our campuses. But it's also clear that this, the shooting was, was racially motivated. And, and in our context as a church, um, that's, that's hardly surprising, but deeply saddening, given our current cultural uh, climate. And then as I watched this week um, a news report where the, the Indian community in Kansas City, there's a lot of fear it's going to happen again. And so um, Indians, those of our, our, our neighbors, um, are afraid to live in Kansas or Kansas City, which is, I think should sadden us as, as we are part of our, um, our city. So I, wanna, I just want to take a moment and pray for that uh, before we get into the sermon um, for this morning. Father God, we, remember, we begin uh, by remembering that Jesus was um, someone who had to flee to Egypt um, to save his own life as an immigrant. We also we remember Jesus and his disciples were made fun of for their accent and the way they spoke. And so we know you, you're a God who knows from the inside what it's like to be someone who doesn't quite fit in, someone who uh, feels like they're on the outside. And so, um, so we pray for the Indian community in Kansas City this morning, we pray that you would protect them, we put your shield around them, we pray that you would give them safety and security, and we pray that, that our city would, um, would respond to love and would be like We pray for the, the families of Scovinus and, and Olives, God, we pray for them as they mourn, as they, um, as they, they go through the painful process of, of losing someone that's close to God, more than that, we pray for uh, the important work here for Garmin, um, the employees that work there, God, that, that um, you would knit them together closely as a working community, God, for those who are Christians in that space, that they, they process this with the hope of the gospel and your love for all people, God, we pray. So, Lord, we, we lament this world we live in, um, where murder and racism and hatred of those who are different than us is a, is a far too human quality, God, there's not been a city that we've built as human beings that hasn't had those things in it. Um, and so we pause to remember, God, your kingdom is just far different from ours. And so you're just the cities we build. And so we pray, as Jesus asked us to pray, that Lord, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pause. We're thankful that you have spoken to us, God. We don't have to build a church. We don't have to participate and be a part of a city without knowing what you've said or having you speak into our lives and change our hearts and make us different. 
So we pause now. Let's open your word to let it speak into our lives and our hearts and make us different people. God, we pray, would you show us Jesus, we ask in his name. One of the things I, I really like about this story of Jesus in Matthew 26 is it highlights something that, that oftentimes is actually, I think, a, an impediment to believing in God or the Bible. Impediment to believing in, in Jesus. And that is, just, there's just this basic reality that people who are, are demanding, people who, who expect to be treated differently, they're exhausted. So when I worked in the, the service industry, um, these people, they wore me out. So we, we had a guy uh, at Starbucks who, he came in every morning and he would bypass the line of paying customers. He would walk to the end of the bar and he would expect a free drink every day. And not just like a coffee, like a, lot, like a latte, like we actually had to make him this free drink. Every day. And it drove me crazy, so finally one day I asked the co-worker who made him the free drink every day, like, Mikey, what? What? Why does this guy do this? And he's like, well, like two years ago, this guy had a really bad day. And so he, Mikey couldn't even remember what it was about. It's like he was on his way to a funeral, there was some business problem, and the guy was having a bad day. So Mikey said, you know what, drink's on us today, go and have a great day. So the guy, he got a free drink one day, and the next day he came back, and he walked to the end of the bar, and he wanted a free drink again. So Mikey's like, all right, you know, maybe he's still having a hard day. So he gave him a drink. The next day as well, and, and two years later, this has been going on every day. The guy walks to the end of the bar, expects a free drink, gets his free drink, and and leaves. And it just drove me crazy. I hate people that expect um, special treatment. But to be fair, there were people I treated differently as a priest. But the, one of the two U.S. senators from Illinois came to our store three or four times. I was a little bit, was a little bit on edge when he walked in. I treated him a little differently. One of the trustees of the United, uh, University of, of Notre Dame that was on the Chicago Board of Exchange. He could get you free tickets to, to anywhere, including the Chicago Cubs. So I treated him differently. I'll just own it. I did. I treated him differently. And, and then there were our regulars, my favorite two customers, Beth and Mateo. They were an older couple. They had a story for everything. Beth's dad actually was the, the head of the FBI here in Kansas City. So we, just, we had great stories going back and forth. And so they were my favorite people. And when Beth ordered it's all non-fat, no foam, extra hot latte. It was extra hot. There was not a bit of foam on that thing. I made it specially for her. I treated them differently. And some people, we, you treat them differently because they are different. Like they're unique. You sense the, the uniqueness about them. You want to honor them in a unique way. And there's some people who you treat differently because they, they demand it from you. They expect it from you. Jesus is both. He both... He's different. He deserves the honor, the respect. Being treated differently, that you can show it. But he also, he demands it from you. You know, in his own way, he walks to the end of the bar and he expects his free drink. Jesus, he, he, both, he is different, but he, he demands differently. And the Bible uses a word to describe this. It's the word, it's the word holy, holiness. Which often in our, our culture is, is sort of, it's, it's, it's not a positive Thing, right? If someone's holy, they're holier than thou. It's a bit of a, a put, a put down. Um, last week, you even talked about judgment. I think when we think about holiness, we think about like God as this distant judge who's angry with us, and, and holiness means anger or judgment. The holiness normally doesn't conjure up in us warm feelings, but it does in this story. In this story, you have two reactions to the realization that Jesus, he's holy, he's different. It's not what I expect. The one person will, uh, she will anoint Jesus with everything she has. 
and the other person will sell, sell him off. So this text, it puts two very different responses side by side. You can either anoint Jesus with everything, or you can sell him off. So what do you do to Jesus? And can you anoint him with everything? What's your price for him? What, what would be the point where you'd sell him off? Certainly, do you, do you see, or what makes him? Now those are the three questions I've been wrestling through, and I want to put those questions to the text this week. Can, can we anoint him? Can we anoint Jesus? Secondly, um, what, what's our price for him? What, what, what point do we sell him off? Thirdly, do, do you see why he's different? Or what makes him different? So first, can you uh, anoint him? In Matthew 26, it begins with Jesus saying yet again that he's about, he's about to die. He's about to be crucified. But it, it's clear that, that the disciples largely had not like actually taking that in and understood he's, he's actually meaning this. Right? Almost like, I don't know if, if you had parents like this growing up, but you know, like you're, you're acting up in the back and you keep, your dad keeps saying, I'm going to turn this man around. And, and, but he says it so many times, you're like, he's not really going to turn the man around. Like he doesn't want to. And I'm now that dad saying, I'm going to turn this man around, but thinking there's no way I'm going to lose time to turn this man around. I hope you just stop yelling. Right? You say it so many times and it's just, it becomes empty. I don't know if that's what's happened, but Jesus is, he said over and over again, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. The disciples had not really taken it in. So Matthew, he doesn't want you to miss, like, actually, no, this is serious. Like, Jesus is actually going to die. So he, he moves quickly from Jesus, verses 1 and 2, saying, I'm going to be crucified. In verses 3 and 5, you actually see the plot uh, unfolding. You're at Caiaphas' house, the high priest, and everyone with power is, is plotting. And they're fearful because they can't just crucify Jesus because... The crowds are, are going to be sworn in Jerusalem for, for Passover. Jesus is a popular figure. They can't just take him aside and, and execute him. That's not going to work. And so they're trying to figure out a way to get him killed, but they're stuck. And then you move away from the plot in Jerusalem, Caiaphas' house, and you move to a little town outside of Jerusalem to Bethany. A little town outside of Jerusalem. And one commentator says, what's unique about this story is this is the first story that people actually believe Jesus is going to die. They actually, they've taken it in, they understand, and they're going to respond. One anoints him. One betrays him. So the setting for this story in Matthew 26, it's a banquet that's being held in Jesus' honor at Simon the Leper's house. And Matthew doesn't give us a lot of context for this, but in another story about Jesus' life written by Jesus' friend, John. John tells us what the banquet's about, why this banquet's being thrown, why people have gotten together to celebrate Jesus in honor of him. And that's because in this story in John 12, um, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And I realize I, I say that, I mean, it's like I just said, you know, and there were fairies flying around. They're like, you know, it, it sounds like I, I realize I say that, it just doesn't land on. But the reality, for whatever you think about the Bible and, and, and history that's in the Bible, there were a lot of people who were convinced that Jesus raised this guy from the dead, and they threw a party to honor Jesus because they were convinced he raised this guy from the dead. And in particular, Jesus' two, or Lazarus' two sisters, sisters Mary and Martha, figured prominently in John 11. So here they are, they're in a, they're in a banquet, they're, they're celebrating, which isn't surprising, because that tends to be what we do after a funeral, is we go and we eat Together, but just a couple weeks back, I was at I was at Misty Misty's grandfather's funeral. We had the funeral service, we had the showing, and then after the, the burial, we went to a restaurant. We ate together, we 
laughed together. We told stories about Bob's life. We reflected on, on him. So imagine all of that's going on, except for the fact that the guy that you're talking about who is dead, he's there listening to the stories. <laughs> imagine the laughter he had. And the mood must have been incredible. And all of them have forgotten Jesus has just said, I, I soon will go to the grave Lazarus. I am going to die. So no one moves. Except for one. Matthew doesn't tell us who it is. John does. It's Mary, Lazarus' sister. She, she enters the room with this very expensive ointment. And this, this, this part wouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. That, um, in that day, uh, people, uh, people did not wear something called deodorant. Um, they did not shower. Uh, we, we didn't have the, they didn't have the waste management system that we have, so trash ended up in various places. Uh, um, so basically, I'm saying people... Uh, didn't smell very good. And if you got a lot of people into the same uh, room, you can imagine there's more, there's just more smell to go around. And so what you would do is you would bring perfume in and you'd put a couple drops. You'd create an aura of gladness to cover the stink in the room. And, and it would smell nice because you brought in this perfume. And so the fact that Mary's brought in perfume, that's not surprising. But what is surprising is two things. First, we're told it's the perfume's in an alabaster flask, which means this, this is a family girl. This is... Matthew tells us it's a year's wages. So in our day, Shawnee medium income is $72,000. So she has brought $72,000 in perfume into the room. It's an heirloom that she uses. And the second thing is she doesn't just put a couple drops in the room to help the Lord. She walks right up to Jesus. Just Jesus. And again, this, this maybe wouldn't have been entirely surprising. You know, she just raised, if Jesus just raised her brother from the dead, people probably think that um, she wants to honor him. Jesus for what he's, he's done. So she goes right to Jesus, the room grows, grows quiet. And what she, ne- what she does next is shocks the room. She doesn't, she doesn't just put a couple drops on Jesus. Right? She, she breaks open the box. Which, if you're not following with me, that means you, you can't put it back together. She's going she's gonna to spend tens of thousands of dollars on Jesus. She dumps all the perfume on Jesus, and then John tells us she binds her head, binds her hair, kneels before Jesus, and washes his dirty, disgusting feet. The room is angry. Indignant is what Matthew says in verse 8. They're furious. For a couple of reasons. One is, is someone buys this and says, you know how many poor people? You sold this. People are starving out there, and you're wasting all of this perfume on one guy. This is a weird act. Why would you? Why would you do this? But the other is Mary. Listen, this is this is her retirement account. This is her savings. This is her the way that if, if a famine came or if the economy fell out, this is the way Mary's family would be safe from any possible financial disaster. She could go and sell this and be fine for years. She's just spent a year of wages on to Jesus. But that's not the most shocking thing. The most shocking thing is what Jesus says in response. Everyone's angry. What a waste. The poor could have eaten. Mary, you've ruined your financial security. So Jesus pipes in and says this. Why do you trouble her? She's done beautiful things in your eyes. For you will always have the poor with you. You will not always have the rich. 
pour this ointment on my body, she has done it. Prepare me for marriage. Truly I say to you, whatever is gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, which she has done, will also be told in the hearing of this earth. Do you understand what Jesus just said? That this, this woman has just given, I mean, spent tens of thousands of dollars on Emptied out her financial security. And Jesus' response is, be quiet, I deserve this. I am worthy of this type of sacrifice. But there's no gift too extravagant that you can give to imitate the Son of God. Jesus expects you to treat him differently. He's not interested in you uh, being interested in him or or welcoming him into a part of your life, or having a casual relationship with him. He wants you to anoint him. So can you? He doesn't just want a piece from you. He wants everything from you. And, and in particular, a couple of thoughts. One, he, there's not a gift you can give that's too extravagant for him. Listen, Mary's giving more than 10% to Jesus here. She's giving up a, fi- a financial security for backup. As I mentioned, this ointment, this perfume, was her protection in this financial disaster. And she's given it over to Jesus. She finds literally the most valuable thing that she owns, and she offers it to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm worthy of this. Now, for us, just a pause. Have you been that radically generous toward Christ? Radically generous either towards your brothers and sisters in Christ in need, but also radically generous towards the church, the place Jesus Founded the place that he said hell itself will not overcome. And what is your what does your own checkbook say about whether or not you can anoint him? But it's not just a financial act. I mean, and that's one thing. But the other thing is that Mary is, is giving an affection towards Jesus, where she's holding nothing back emotionally. Right? As I mentioned, John says that Mary she, she unbound her hair, she worshiped. Jesus by washing his, his feet. But to unbound your hair, you didn't do that in public. You only did that in private with family. It was an act of intimacy. So she, she's being intimate there as a friend before Jesus. But then she wiped Jesus' feet, which was an act of utter uh, servanthood and humility, almost saying, okay, Jesus, I'm your slave. That's why in a couple of chapters when um, the, the disciples gather for the, the last meal with Jesus. No one wants to wash each other's feet because whoever opts for that role is saying, I'm the least important. I'm the slave, right? I'm the, I'm the one that, 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 that will get lower than everyone else. So Mary takes that position, washes Jesus' feet. And so Mary, she's not looking at Jesus in some cold, dispassionate way. This isn't some religion she's trying to follow with her life. Her heart is moved. She's moved to worship, to be vulnerable with tears, Offering Jesus her whole self, unconcerned with what he needs. Is that how you respond to Jesus? Is that how you worship him? Sing to him? And the question is left, why would she do this? What's she doing here? This is where you have to enter into the story. Mary watched her brother die. And death in that day is not like our day. You didn't go to a hospital, you weren't under sedation. Death wasn't sanitized. No, her brother had a disease that we know from John 11 lasted several days. They knew death was coming. She watched her brother die in her house before her eyes with no help. Then she buried her brother. And Mary saw all that, and then she saw Jesus coming. She wept with Jesus over the death of her brother, and they did not follow that. 
that Jesus got up and stood outside the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came out. Mary saw that. And in seeing all that, what, if you saw that, what would you do with that? I, I can't imagine what a doctor experiences when they find the right diagnosis, the right, finally the person who has come to the struggle is finally healed. I can't imagine what, what a person would do for a doctor who heals him, let alone a your friend who raises your brother And that's compelling enough, but I don't think that's why Mary's doing what she's doing here. Because Jesus tells you why Mary's doing what she's doing here. It is to prepare Jesus for burial. Mary knows Jesus is going to die, so she embraces him. She anoints his, his body for death. She kneels before him. She kisses his body. She, she's, she's giving this affectionate act, knowing that Mary, knowing that Jesus will die. The reality is Mary understood Jesus is different. And I hope, I hope you can see that, even if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who follows Jesus, I hope at least you'll see stories like this put Jesus in a different category than the Buddha, than Muhammad, than other faiths. I mean, Jesus won. He's accepting worship. He's accepting someone's act of worship. Um, but more than that, he's convinced the room of people he's raised someone from the dead. Listen, however you think of Jesus, can you at least see he's, you have to look at him in a different way than you look at other faiths, other religions. You just can't put him in the category with Muhammad stories like this. The Christians in the room, do you, do you see why Jesus is different from us? How he is holy. Jesus is saying, I, I'm going to die for you. And I have power over death itself. I don't have to die. I just raised Lazarus from death. I don't have to do this. I'm going to die for you. And if you believe in me, I believe in you. Jesus has told us to Mary since the Though you die, yet we live. And yet we look, religion within Christianity in our context can so, it's just this dispassionate, this intellectual thing that we believe in. We don't, we're not moved to affection to Jesus. I think one of the things that, that we need to see is we watch Mary respond to this Jesus movement. We should be a people who sing with all our hearts, who pray with all our guts, who weep with the death of our own sin, because we put him on the cross, and we bow out for joy, because God has completely changed everything about our lives and our settings, and that death will not be the last word for us because of Jesus. There should be a fundamental affection with which we show Jesus. We don't only think that. Right? We unbound our hair, we kneel before him, we dump out all that we own in front of him, because he changes everything. So can you anoint him? He's saying he deserves it. Worthy of everything you've given. Can you anoint him? That's the first question that this text raises. The second is, is what, what would you sell him for? And so I mentioned earlier in the story that, that this is the first time two people actually believe Jesus is going to die. They believe him when he says that. The first is Mary. She anoints Jesus with this expensive perfume. Um, but the other person who comes to this uh, conclusion is one of the disciples of Jesus. And you see the disciples, they're angry at this moment. Um, Jesus rebukes them, um, but one of the disciples clearly, he's just had enough. This is the last straw. So the way Matthew frames this narrative is, is getting up and leaving this banquet, Judas decides he's going to betray Jesus. So he goes to the chief priests who just had their meeting, and he says, listen, you guys, you guys need a, a unique moment to get to Jesus, crucified, to get him, to kill him, and I can give you that moment. 
For 30 pieces of silver, he sells off Jesus. And Rita, I've always wondered why, right? The same reason, why would Mary anoint Jesus like this? Why would Judas betray Jesus like this? And maybe it was that Judas had hoped Jesus as Messiah would destroy Rome, kick them out, become king, and set up shop, and it'd be a glorious future. Maybe Judas wanted more power. Maybe Judas wanted more money. Maybe Judas wanted more prestige than what following Jesus had given him. But whatever it was, I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, Jesus was not meeting Judas's condition. Judas had an agenda for Jesus, and Jesus was not meeting it. So Jesus, or Judas, decides, well, that's it. I'm going to betray him. So he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And the question I think we have to wrestle with is, what is my agenda? And we can't pretend like we don't have it. We all have it. We expect something from you. So what? What's your condition? What's your agenda? What's your price? Then you see your plans for your future. Uh, you know where you want your life to go. You know where you want your career to go. You know what college you want to get into. And as long as, as things go about how you would expect or hope or there's no major derailment. Well, okay, me and Jesus were on good terms. But if there is a derailment, 30 pieces of silver is pretty impressive. Or is your, your price, your agenda for Jesus, is your taste? As long as you get the family you want, the Instagram feed um, is a, an accurate reflection of what your family actually is, and me and Jesus are just fine. But if life with your kids takes a direction that's hard, that's painful, that you don't want, Jesus, Jesus breaks the agenda you have for your, your kid. Is that, is that your price? So the question this morning is not, do you have an agenda for Jesus? It's, what is it? What's your price for him? Let me tell you mine. For me, working as a church, especially in church planning, when you start with something that didn't exist, and now you do something that does, um, I, there's just immense pressure to get more people, to be financially uh, secure, to, to look like you're doing really great work, to have victories that on an earthly scale look like look like you're successful. And so, I, listen, there are days I just sit and I wonder what if I knew that that our church would grow really big and we have financial security and everyone would look around and say, "What a great church! We did such a great job." And we had all that, but the Holy Spirit of Jesus wasn't in it. Would I take that over a church where the Holy Spirit of Jesus drove everything, but earthly terms, there, it wasn't successful? There weren't more people. There were, there were always financial problems. Would I take that path, knowing Jesus and the Holy Spirit are in him, or would I sell them off? And we all have him. Things we want him to do for us. And I think one of the ways you can tell is, what, what, where do you get most disappointed in God? Where, where does he frustrate you most? How is he disappointed? That's a clue for the agenda you bring to him. Because what Jesus wants from you and I is, Conditionless trust, right? Just break open the flask, pour out your life upon him, trust him with it. Don't come with an agenda. If you're going to do that, if we're going to be the sort of church, the sort of Christians who do that, you have to understand two things. One is that if you, whatever you bring to Jesus, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted with Jesus. And it's a powerful moment when the, most of the room looks at what Mary does and says, What a waste. And what Jesus says is, No, this, what she is doing will be remembered for eternal, eternity. It takes on eternal significance. Just this anointment of perfume on to me. And the reality is, whatever it is you offer up to Jesus in faith, whatever it is you pour out onto him in trust and hope, whatever that is, it will take on eternal 
significance. And if you approach your work in a way that, above all, you're trying to honor Jesus, if that's how you approach caring for your patients, your desire to work for justice, and serving your clients, or working for your customers, if the most important thing to you is honoring Christ, then whatever you do, it will not be wasted. If you're approaching, if you're approached to your, to your friendships and to your most significant relationships, is to honor Jesus, nothing will go to waste. If that's your approach to your kids, nothing will go to waste. And yet that's our fear. But if we if we pour it all out for Jesus, it's all in his hands, and he better come through. And so often it looks like he's not. I can't imagine what Mary thought the moment she cracked the jar open. The decision has been made. If there was any like regret, should I have done that? Like the whole thing, like you have with it. Like, and, and yet that's what Jesus calls us. That we come in, he demands your whole life, no conditions, no agenda. You get to place him in a box, and then as long as he performs in the box, you give him a little bit more room to breathe, a little bit more space, and a little bit more trust. No, you come and you break the box and you trust him, or you go off and sell it. So for you have to see nothing you give to him will be wasted. It will take on eternal significance. It will last. A sacrifice to his kids becomes something beautiful. But secondly, apart from Jesus. Everything becomes sacrifice. But Jesus, uh, he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And what happens? In a few verses, he'll regret his decision, and he'll throw his 30 pieces of silver on the earth. Judas literally sells Jesus for nothing. For nothing. His betrayal is wasted. And in his hands, trying to grab control of his life, grab control of his hopes, it's all waste. All this waste is, is nothing. So if we're if we're honest, right? If, if we begin to really think we know our hearts, right? Would we trade? Would we trade healthy kids for Jesus? Would we trade a bigger house, more success, more money for Jesus? Would we trade good grades, um, a good uh, education for Jesus, right? We we think in doing that we're actually gaining, right? We're getting more into our hands. But the reality is everything is wasted. Your kids can turn out successful without Jesus. It's all, it's all going to go to waste. Your retirement fund can be huge, but if, if, if Jesus isn't in it, it's all going to go to waste. And you can have everything you want, and ultimately, we all die empty-handed. No matter how tightly you hold on to this life, no matter how tightly you try to grab onto your agenda or your hopes or your plans, the reality is we all die empty-handed. So why not empty those hands out to Jesus and pour it all for him and let him take your life and make it into something better? We all die. Once you get to the uh, beat, beat the box, empty those hands and ask Jesus. Like Mary. But it raises the question how in the world do we do that, right? How in the world do we come to God with conditionless trust? That we don't bring agendas to Him, that we don't bring conditions, that we don't come with expectations. Right? How can we know that ultimately, if we break our lives over Him and we give Him everything, it won't go to waste? How do we know that? I think really that question is well, okay, what, what makes Jesus? What puts them in a category by themselves? Because the reality is most of our relationships, they need conditions because people lie, they curse, they cheat, they, they, they use our trust to harm us. And so how can we possibly come to God with no conditions and not have it blow up in our hands? The reality is there's only one way. There's only one way you and I can have a conditional relationship, conditionless relationship with God. If that's if he's willing to have it. If we can know beyond a shadow of doubt, there's no way, there's no chance, there's no possibility 
he will abandon us because he has an agenda for our lives. Right before where God would ever expect you to bring what's most valuable to, to you to anoint him, he would first bring what's, what's most valuable to him and anoint it and break it over you first. And that's what Mary did too. So what's, what's Mary doing in this perfume this, this morning? She's anointing Jesus before his death. And why does Jesus die in Mary Jones? He's dying for me. He's dying for you. He's dying for me. So that God can rightly look at you and look at me and say, I don't have conditions that you have to meet in order to know me. I have met those conditions for you. I, I, have, I have sent my son. He has died for me. He has been broken on a cross. And all of his blood was poured out. There was nothing left. The conditions have been met. Come and know me. Right? I, I live the life that you should have lived. I die the death that you should have died. I am breaking the most valuable thing Oh, that, that I have, my own son, to know you and to have you back. And if that's how God offers to know you, then how can we come with an agenda, with conditions, with expectations for him, with only a part of ourselves? We can't just bring out the perfume and offer it a couple of drops. You have to break the bottle. You have to empty it out before him. He gets it all because he himself broke his son on the cross for you to know you. He poured out his blood to know you. You can't come to him with a little interest to extend your hand for a handshake. You have to anoint him with everything. He deserves it. So as Christians, there is not a cost too great. There is not an affection you should not feel toward him. There is not a condition you should bring to trust him. You have to pour out the whole jar for him, your whole life for him. He has done that for you. He will accept no less from us. Let's pray. As we reflect on your gospel, we are reminded why we need you. God, you don't just call us to come and, and offer ourselves to you in hopes that maybe you'll respond to us, God. You call us to come and offer you because you have offered all of yourself to us. So, God, would you forgive us for our belief, our desire to grab onto what we have and try to keep our lives for ourselves. God, would you forgive us of that and open us to the world, Mary, that the world that we can see surpassing value in your endless love and patience and desires and your lives. God, would you show us what we ask? Jesus,